part of the thing about the identity of belovedness, what coming out of those areas of just trauma and pain and depression and darkness, is that I've realized that um, I am adored by God when I'm laying in bed staring at the wall. And I'm producing nothing. And I'm contributing to the church in no way. And I'm not out there doing a thing. And yet I am like astoundingly beloved by God. I have Aaliyah Joy on the podcast today. She's the author of a brand new book called Glorious Weakness, Discovering God and All We Lack. And it is just a gorgeous book. Uh, such great writing. She writes about her life with bipolar disorder as well as grief, faith, marriage, poverty, race, embodiment, and keeping fluent in the language of hope. Uh, I loved this conversation. It was so rich for me. I will say by way of trigger warning, she does speak briefly about her history of being molested as a child. And we get into that a little bit, so fair warning on that. She does a great job speaking about it, but if that's something that uh, you need to be aware of, be wary of before listening, I wanted to give you that warning. So enjoy this conversation with Aaliyah Joy. Aaliyah, hi, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I, um, well, first of all, I listened to another podcast that someone else did. Um, now I can't remember the name. It was like CDX. Some, I, oh, I yeah. Right. For the, um, the mental health. Yes. Is that what you're thinking of? Yep. Yeah. And <clears throat> I, so I love that. I loved just, you know, getting some, some essential, like, okay, what, what does she like to talk about? What does she not like to talk about? But, right. I, but I will tell you that, um, and, and like I emailed you, I, your writing <laughs> is gorgeous. It is just gorgeous. And you found, um, a way to, to communicate what I think is very raw, very beautiful experience of trauma and hope. So I can't wait to get into it. Um, so let's just dive in. Um, Aliyah, like, where did you grow up? And especially, what's your spiritual background? So <clears throat> my parents were missionaries. Um, they kind of became Christians in the uh, 70, like mid-70s. Were they Jesus uh, early people 70s. or anything? Like Very that. Jesus people. My dad was a hippie. He had, <laughs> you know, kind of homeless wanderer. And uh, my mom was a like a counselor at, uh, I mean, it's, it's Teen Challenge, I guess, at the oh, yeah. Assembly of Gods. Mm -hmm. um, but the one that they were they were at at the time in Maui was kind of run more like a family. Um, and so she was a counselor there away from home for the first time, pretty um, innocent. And then my dad came along and was hitchhiking and got dropped off there. And the, they ended up meeting. He became a Christian. And... Um, the thing was kind of, you know, go make disciples. And they were really idealistic. Mm -hmm. um, so they were like, we're going to go be missionaries. <laughs> and oh, so um, I grew up, <clears throat> we had gone, uh, they had joined Youth with a Mission. Mm -hmm. And we were overseas. Uh, I spent my first birthday in Holland. Wow. Um, and we ended up in Nepal. Um, this was around the early 80s. And then I got sick. Uh, when we were out there, I was diagnosed with leukemia. And so we went back to Holland and then to Hawaii, where I'm originally from. Um, 
And then from there, we moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I spent most of my childhood and my teen years, my beginning teen years in Albuquerque. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, and then I, uh, I moved back to Hawaii and that was kind of where I met Jesus. <laughs> so, well, you know, I think a lot of us meet Jesus in Hawaii, really. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, if, like, if you can't, then there might be something. No, I, I but I actually, I actually have some questions about that process. I, I had read that, that you had leukemia as a, as, as a child, and, and, and my question is what was like the spiritual, like, like what was the Christian, uh, at, were people praying for healing for you? Was it that kind of an environment? Did you feel supported by that or not? Um, do you know what I mean? You know, I was so little, I mean, I was four and five during okay. that, that time. So my memories of it were, you know, getting jabbed by nurses right, and, right. um, in Holland, they don't always have the best bedside manner, you know, they're a little blunt and it was just different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are my memories of it. My parents, um, they, yeah, you know, the, I think YWAM was praying for my healing mm-hmm. and, you know, people were praying, but then we were also, you know, exploring all of the medical things in Nepal. I was diagnosed, it was reconfirmed when I was in um, Holland and I was in the hospital for several weeks. And, um, Actually, I mean, I don't write about this in the book, but actually my tests started coming back um, and my blood my blood count was normalizing. Hmm. And the doctors there were like, we don't really know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I was sort of miraculously healed. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm not really I, – I tend to, I think for, for most of my years, I tend to shy away from a lot of talking about that. Yeah. I've just recently – um, kind of been like, Oh, I remember talking with, um, Amber Haynes. Mm-hmm. We were walking along the street. This was several, I don't know, five years ago. And I was sharing this part of my story and I was kind of like, well, you know, I don't know. They might, maybe they misdiagnosed me or there might've been, you know, I just like, it was kind of this all, I don't know. Like I, yeah. I have such a rational brain in certain parts that I have a hard time saying that. And, and it's been so misused. Yes, the miraculous that, that's what I'm getting at. Like, so yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Right. So I tend to be a little bit um, wary of saying those kind of things sometimes because yeah. uh, I've been on the other side of that, mm-hmm. uh, especially with bipolar disorder. You know, yeah. bipolar. So I have heard a lot of the if you just had more faith, then mm-hmm. you wouldn't you know, have these things. Uh, my dad passed away when he was um, sick and dying. There was a lot of that. Like if he had mm-hmm. faith, he would be healed kind of stuff. So I tend to shy away from that. But um, I was walking down the street with her and I was sharing and, you know, she has that southern <laughs> accent, you know, mm-hmm. and she just said, well, you know, oh, the Lord healed you. And I, it was such a um, paradigm shifting thing for me because I, I think part of my brain was like that kind of stuff, that kind of attentiveness, that kind of special, like sort of touch and attention from God just seemed out of the realm for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed like something that happened in the Bible, you know, hundreds of years ago, but not something that could still happen. And so I, it's something that I continue to wrestle with God's presence in the everyday. Yeah. Uh, the fact that he can and does heal and also that he's under no obligation to do so. Like, right. you know, I can't know his will. And there is that uh, misapplication that people use where they equate faith to healing. You know, if you had this faith, mm-hmm. then you would, you know, and everybody goes forward and oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah. know, the pastor prays for you with, you know, tries to knock you over with yeah. your finger oh and in the spirit, you know, I mean, yeah. so I, I, I am sort of wary of, of that. Um, I think there was some of that, of course, 
but I really think that in, in general, you know, my parents were a part of a community, a very, very strong community. And I think those people just, we pray for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that was the experience with that. Yeah. Well, thanks for going there for just a second because it, just, and, and we'll get to it, but there obviously has been so many different kinds of trauma, I think in your life that if there had been some real goofy, uh, you know, well, uh, you you, get, you will get healed if you just pray right. hard enough for it. Then, right, yeah. right that would have really, um, I think, probably negatively impacted your your psyche right. and psychology. As you know, right? Um, I mean, so 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 it sounds like missionaries, notwithstanding your relationship with your parents, was okay. Like it was it was decent. Yeah, you know, my parents were. I mean, I feel like they loved us the best that they knew how, and. Yeah. There is a part of that idealistic sort of, um, you know, missionary kid mindset that can be difficult. Um, and so, you know, I think at this now, you know, as an adult um, and that they're older, they're, they acknowledge some of that. Um, at the same time, they were incredibly loving mm-hmm you know, attentive parents. We had a, like very, very open communication. Um, I think some of the disconnect was on my end. Mm-hmm. Um, I was molested when we were in Nepal as a tiny child and I never told anybody about it. And so I carried a lot of guilt and shame and I sort of pulled away in a sense. Um, because I felt dirty, because I felt, yeah. you know, wrong. And I, and so there was a, a divide that was there for me growing up because I couldn't reconcile this God that they said was good mm-hmm. with my experiences and with a life that I saw, you know, they, to me, my parents were the most faithful people that I knew. Yeah. Like they took God very seriously. Mm-hmm. And when God said to, you know, sell everything and give to the poor, they were very much those people that were mm-hmm. like, this isn't, um, a metaphor for something else like this is how we live and yeah. so we we did live very much by faith i mean yeah. they went to nepal in the early 80s with two children with 75 dollars in support like mm. a month you know that was good and, and money came in for them and different things but like you know who does that you right, know right. and so there was a sort of a pushback when we came back from nepal because i had gotten sick mm-hmm. and there was this idea when we came back i think especially well Oh, well, that was because you're foolish, right? You did, you, you like mm-hmm. trusted God and you can't trust God without a backup plan. Right. Um, and so I think that was where the hurt came in a lot. My parents got really bitter against the North American church and oh, what we yeah. saw as very commercial, commercialized, uh, self-centered sort of, you know, faux gospel. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and so I think that was where, um, some of the breakdown happened. My parents just didn't fit well. Like they've always just been sort of different. Yeah. They just didn't fit well in this culture. They've always been kind of extreme. And, um, and so, yeah, I think, I think some of it was that my, my relationship with them is good. I think my teen years, I had a lot of issues with my dad. I wear a lot. We were a lot alike, uh, in many ways. And, you know, when I was a little girl, he was my hero. Yeah. And when I started growing up and realizing he's just a man and he makes mistakes and he is disappointing and, um, you know, we just, we had so much trauma, I think for so many years that as an adult now I'm 40 and mm-hmm. I have my own children. Mm-hmm. 
I can look back and go, oh, my dad was doing the very, very best he could. And I have no doubt that he loved me. But there were years where I felt very – I just felt like he forgot about me because he was trying so hard to keep my brother alive. Um, And so there were – you know, there are breakdowns in relationship there, but overall, um, you know, looking back in retrospect, I realized my parents did the best they could to provide me with, uh, uh, you know, they weren't legalistic, um, in the ways that, you know, some maybe missionary kids were, they did allow us a lot of self-expression and they did encourage us. And, you know, so it's kind of a mixed bag because yeah. at the same time growing up in that culture where it's like the you know, what would Jesus do culture and the youth group, you know, was, I mean, I was totally traumatized at church, you know, <laughs> the worst people I ever knew were the church people. And so, um, oh. so in that way, you know, there was all of that too. Um, but yeah, I think they did the best they could. Yeah. I have a lot of grace for them now that I'm older. Well, and by the way, if your tiny Asian mom does walk in the door, <laughs> I definitely want to talk to her for a few moments. So please don't be shooing her out of there. Okay. Uh, yeah, because your your mom lives with you now, and I I know that. Um, so uh, can I can I ask like um, after you were molested, when like did you rem- like did you know that right away? Did, did it come back to you? Did you block it out? And then who like when did you tell someone about that? Yeah. Um, I did know, but I, I think in my mind, um, it was consensual because I didn't ever verbally say no. Mm. I just, I felt like I let it happen. Mm. Um, also it was a teenage boy that was in our, you know, community and he was somebody that I looked up to. He Mm. was somebody that I liked. I, you know, I was really thrilled that he, Mm. um, played with me and gave me attention. And so, it very much felt as a child that I was part of this, that mm-hmm. I was complicit. And mm-hmm. so that caused a lot of, like, even though I didn't want that to happen, there was a part of me that was like, well, I let it happen. And yeah. uh, maybe I, you know, uh, so there was a lot of guilt there. And mm-hmm. I, and I, even though, you know, rationally now I can look, you know, when my kids were four and five, I mean, as a parent looking at them, you just realize, Oh my gosh. Right, right. But in my child mind, um, that was not, that was not something that I understood. So I was probably 17. It was after I became a Christian before I ever told my mom, I actually never told my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was a long, long time of carrying that. And, um, yeah. And, and then, you know, a long time of healing after that, I thought, okay, now I can talk about it. You know, I got to the place at 17 where I could talk about it. I thought, okay, this is fine. Um, I had some post-traumatic stress, you know, things, especially when I started seriously dating my husband. Um, and then after we got married, there was more you know, things that came. So it was just this constant, like, oh, there's another layer. Here's another layer. Here's another layer. Yeah. of healing has to happen. And that's, that's still, that's still, you know, a reality for me. It's not done. For sure. Um, yeah. As you have written more and more about, uh, that and, and some of the other trauma, do you find that that's a common story among kids that get abused, that they feel complicit in some way until they finally realize, no, that wasn't, that wasn't consensual. Is that common? I think so. I mean, I think that's one of the, you know, one of the issues where 
we see grooming patterns happen, right? Because you, you have developed sort of this, um, relationship and bond, sometimes admiration, um, for this person, you know, which is why it's so horrific when it happens in, in churches and when it happens with people that you've trusted, when it happens with teachers or, you know, your, your coach or people that have earned this sort of space in your life. Um, and oftentimes it is that, you know, it is those people that are kind of close to you and, mm-hmm. and you respect and you, um, you know, your priest or your, I mean, so I think with that comes a lot of that, those feelings of being complicit or being, because you have formed this relationship with this person and now they're taking advantage of that. But I think in a child's mind, we don't always differentiate between power differentials, how this person has power over you, how this person has, uh, you know, an increased size, increased power, increased position, increased, um, authority, and therefore that person um, is abusing that when they are abusing you. And, and I don't know that we, you know, as kids, especially, especially as young kids, I don't know that we um, understand that. Even if, even if we can rationally understand, I don't know that we can feel that. Yeah. Um, and so there is guilt that comes there because, oh, I, I trusted him. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. You know, or even like, oh, I had a crush on him. You know, mm-hmm. he's like, they're and cute and whatever. And then when something happens, you think, oh, like I did not want that to happen. Um, but we don't understand consent in that way because right. we think, well, you know, I did think he was cute or I did go with them here because I did trust them or I did mm-hmm. do this thing because they asked me to, mm-hmm. but I, you know, or he's trusted in the community. So of course he's right. to be trusted. And so why would right. I not, well, you know, you don't have categories for certain things when you're right. you know, five or six or four. Yep. Um, yep. And even when you're older, I mean, even when you're a teenager, even when you're, you know, the the power structure that allows somebody that has authority and a certain position in your life to abuse you is pretty common. I mean, I think that's why people that are abusers seek out positions where they have power and influence and position to Mm -hmm. be able to be in your life and be somebody who has that sort of persona where you think, Oh, I can trust this person. This person has, you know, been invited into my home by my parents. Mm -hmm. This person has been at the pulpit preaching to everybody. And, you know, so there are those kind of, um, things that can happen in our, in our mind where we, we think this must be okay, you know, or this must be, um, or even if we don't know it's okay, like, I think that there's those feelings of like, we go along with things sometimes because, Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily know we can say no. Yeah. Man, have you met Laura Parrot Perry? I haven't met met her in real life. I just, Twitter, Twitter friends. Oh my gosh. So she, you, you two need to be friends. She is amazing. (laughs) Like, like you are. And I think, um, you know, she just has a, a, um, sort of her, her, her ministry is helping people to share their stories. Uh, mm-hmm. So that they're not alone, especially sexual abuse survivors. And so, anyway, uh, I you you need to know her. She is just <laughs> wonderful. Uh, so, um, so you started writing. I mean, I'm sure you wrote when you were younger, different things. Mm-hmm. But I, but I, I, if if I if I understand your story correctly, you started kind of like a sewing blog or something <laughs> like that, right? Like yeah, that that, that was totally how it all did. started. I totally did. Yeah, uh, they were getting people were getting like free stuff, and I was like, oh, I could do like a sewing blog and get free like sponsored yeah. post oh, yeah. stuff. <laughs> uh, 
but then mm. but then you kind of thought, <clears throat> well, I don't really care all that much about this. And 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 then right. you and then you just started writing uh the honest stuff. And so talk right. talk to me about sort of how that like how that went for you and like, like when did you decide to do it and what was it like when you first posted your first, what felt like honest post about your own journey and your own story? Yeah, I, um, I, I thought it was going to be something else. And then I started going through a depression and I had this blog that was set up. Um, and I hadn't really read a lot of, um, I hadn't really been familiar with a lot of blogs that did storytelling. I mean, I was pretty much in the crafty DIY section where, you know, I was reading a lot of that. I had read Anne Voskamp's blog because I think she was, that was kind of when she was in the super, super, Mm -hmm. you know, popular, I think. I think one out of every five people on the planet read her blog. Right, right. Yeah. So that was back when they had the music, right? You know. Um, the piano and, mm-hmm. and, um, we had gone through like a, that with, a I, we'd gone through her book with some friends, like we did a morning thing and we would read through it and she was very honest. And yeah. I thought, Oh, like, um, you know, I think uh, the, <laughs> the blogging world at that point, like everybody kind of had that Ann Voss camp esque voice, right? <laughs> We're all like <laughs> doing weird things with our, with our words. And I mean, all the, all the female bloggers were like emulating her, mm-hmm. um, pictures anyway, of, of random books <laughs> sitting on coffee tables and, right you know and farm lots of wood landscapes yeah and, wood. yeah <laughs> tables and um anyway so i uh i started writing yeah i don't remember what my first post was but i started writing about this depression and, and what it was like and um reaching out to god and wondering like if this is is this like a cur? Am I cursed? You know, mm-hmm. sort of this wrestling with: Am I cursed, or is this like something God will use? And if He'll use it, what will that look like? And and I'm in this dark place, and and I don't feel that He's real right now. And mm-hmm. it's just you know all of the questions that we have, right? All of the yeah. struggles, and started talking about them, and um, and just writing through them, and yeah, you know, it's just sort of my own kind of thing. But I was. I was, you know, I, I say that I was just sort of writing through it. I did know that, that I was writing in a, in a public space, which is yeah. very, very different than how I had journaled for years and years and years in a private space. And okay. so that, that shift, um, I had always written these things, but not publicly. Right. Um, but since I had this blog, I started doing that and yeah, I mean, pretty soon people were showing up and, um, I think that for every comment I've ever gotten on my blog, I've probably gotten 10 emails. <laughs> and so I realized that one of the things that happens with mental illness is that it's a very private mm-hmm. struggle for many, many people. Yeah. And a lot of this stuff is sexual abuse. And many of these things are things that people are dealing with behind their closed doors in their lives, but not necessarily in community Yeah. Uh, because it's not something that always feels safe. And, and sometimes it's not safe to talk mm-hmm. about these things in community. Right. And so what I found was there was this, there was this hunger for people to identify and connect with somebody who also understood what this felt like, mm-hmm. what this was like, and to, to just feel like you're, experience was a little bit validated and granted like you know we all have different experiences i mean when i write about bipolar disorder i say this is my Mm -hmm. 
experience of it. And you can ask 10 other people and theirs might be different, but there are hints of our humanity. And when we talk about the different feelings that we have, right, that, that we all connect to. I have many people that have read my book that have n- nothing in common with my actual life circumstances. And yet they'll say, I feel this, like I, this part resonates with me because I think, you know, some of those emotions are common to us all. Some of those feelings are common to us all, whether we've been through certain things or not. Um, and so that was what I was really sort of realizing is that there is this deep hunger in us to feel less alone, to Mm -hmm. feel understood, to feel seen. Of course, I'm an Enneagram four. So like, I mean, that's like the fouriest thing ever. Yes, I love that. <laughs> Seen and belong and feel like we're not, you know, fatally flawed. And and so, um, yeah, I mean, that's really how it kind of started. It, it was that. It was a lot of realizing that there are just so, so many people um, that are struggling with things that just feel like they have no place to walk with somebody else, you know? Yeah. Uh, and how important it is to have that have somebody that is there on the journey with you. So I want to ask you about like when even because you were diagnosed with bipolar not that long ago, right? I yeah, mean, it was, in my 30s, my early 30s. Yeah. yeah. So 2012, maybe, I think. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that's, you know, as an adult and, and mm-hmm. you and you have said it elsewhere, that even after you were diagnosed, you, you sort of were tempted to write about it. Like, well, my depression, you know, which is, yep, I did, which yeah, is for a, for that's a, a less, there's less stigma. Maybe there's still right. some stigma, yeah. but less. Right. So can, can you just, cause he, he like, and I want to get to the teeth too, cause you write about your teeth and it's just such <laughs> this beautiful way that exposes some of the stereotypes and the way people treat you and the way people, mm-hmm. the assumptions that people make, if you have right. teeth problem, that you're poor right. and you don't take care of yeah. yourself. So I want to talk about all of that, but, but before we get to that, um, as you have come to grips with being honest about being bipolar, what, what have, what have, how have people reacted to that in general? I know that's a, just a wide reaching question, but but how have you maybe dealt with the wide ranging responses um, to um, to being bipolar and being public about it? Yeah, um, <clears throat> you know, I think that it's a mixed bag. I think that there are downs. Like I, you know, even when I was going to talk about, you know, talk about it, I remember talking having a conversation with my mom, who is an incredibly private person, which mm-hmm. is like just the irony of having me as a daughter. Um, so she, she was like, I don't, you know, she didn't want to see it be something that would hinder, um, opportunities for me and things like that. And I think that there, you know, there's wisdom there. There's a reality to the fact that, um, you know, and I, I can't pinpoint it on this specifically, but, um, considering all of the things, you know, I look at some of my peers that are in the writing space and they're speaking all over and they're doing all of these things. And I am not in those circles very often, not invited to a lot of things very often. And I think there is, because of my openness about being, you know, struggling with these things and some of the things that happen um, where I'm, there's an unpredictability to mental illness. Mm -hmm. I can't plot exactly what I'll be feeling in two weeks or a month or, you know, how I'll be doing. And so I think some of that is, um, 
you know, a, a conference doesn't necessarily want to take a gamble on somebody who has mm-hmm. bipolar disorder because what if she is, you know, severely depressed when it comes time to speak and right. like, you know, so there are, I mean, that's the same with chronic illness. I deal mm-hmm. with, you know, several chronic illness things and I write really openly about that, but I do sometimes wonder, does that limit who is willing to take a chance to hear my voice from this place, knowing that I'm not speaking on the other side of it. I'm not mm-hmm. speaking as somebody who used to struggle mm-hmm. with depression and used to have health problems. I'm somebody who currently has health problems yeah, and yeah. illness and disability. And so with those things, you know, needing special accommodations or needing more time, or need, I think that there is, um, yeah, I mean, I have seen that. I've, I've wondered sometimes like, um, mm-hmm. in the, in the opportunities that open for me, if I, if I'm being bypassed because people are mm-hmm. scared to take that chance. Um, so that is a reality to, to how open I am. I, I do think that is, yeah. that is real on the other side of it. Um, I think that overall my readers are incredibly generous, mm-hmm. kind people. Mm-hmm. I have an, mm-hmm. I, I've been blessed with very, very kind readers um, in real life, what I have found is that there are a lot more people struggling than you would ever imagine. Yeah, yeah. And I remember going to church and having, you know, an elderly woman pull me aside. She's very together and she's got like her pearls and mm-hmm. she's, you know, got her, she's in retirement and she just, I mean, you would, she's, you just would think she has everything together. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I have struggled with anxiety mm-hmm. for my whole life and I never had you know, a language to surround it. Nobody ever talked about it. And, you know, I mean, she was in her like sixties, you know, six, maybe almost 70. And she was just, you know, pulling me aside to mention, Hey, I get what this feels like. And I, she's never talked about it, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, and so you realize like, she's not somebody that I'd go, Oh, she probably has, you know, you just don't ever know mm-hmm. who has what and what they're dealing with behind closed doors. And there are a lot of people that email me that have bipolar disorder that are not able to, for those same reasons I mentioned, um, be able to talk about their illness in a public way. They work for the school system or they're yep. in church ministry or, you know, and it would just, it would limit their um, their authority because yeah. we don't value weakness. We don't mm-hmm. value people that are ill. We don't value people that are sick. We don't mm-hmm. value people that are poor. So if you admit to those things, I'm poor and I'm sick and I'm weak, then we automatically think, well, you don't have authority right. to speak because you don't have it together enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what we really want is the, the after story. Right. We want you to have been poor, right. but not now. We want you to have been sick, but not now. We want the we want the you know before and after, and we want the mm-hmm. after to look like what we think redemption should look like, which is everything is fixed and tidy. And the reality is that my life will probably never be fixed and tidy. This could very well be a disease that I battle my entire life. Um, I I have uh, you know kind of severe symptoms that that go along with it. I, I'm a rapid cycler. Medications have been hard to find and balance. Um, mm-hmm. I've switched medications so many times, you know. So uh, there is an aspect of that in in dealing with the disease and dealing with you know things in my body, and you know some of that is probably from early tri- tra- you know, trauma, childhood trauma, different things. But looking at those things, I there is a limit to how we are seen 
as valuable in the church when we're weak, Yes, when we display our weakness openly. Um, And instead of it being something where this weakness is then an area for God to strengthen us and to show, you know, his power, right, through our weakness, his strength through our weakness, we, we really value people that can show their own strength, you know? And I'm, I I mean, I, I, I wrote a post about it, but I was talking to somebody else about, you know, during the writing of this book, there was a period where I was in a hypomanic phase and during a hypomanic phase, I can sleep for maybe two hours and I can go and go and go. And I have all the thoughts and all the feelings and I'm very, very capable until, until I, you know, usually end up in a mixed state and then I'm, then I'm dangerous to myself and, you know, just because I'm so uh, irritated and frustrated and, and depressed and, and hypomanic at the same, like it's all yeah. just this cluster of, and that's when it gets dangerous. But when I'm hypomanic, just kind of cresting, uh, I feel incredibly capable mm-hmm. and I can do all of the things. Mm-hmm. And it's the only time that I feel this enlarged capacity because normally mm-hmm. my capacity is very small. Yeah. Um, and so I remember writing my book. I think it was, you know, headed towards certain deadlines. And I just thought I could just ride this wave mm-hmm. and just get all of this stuff done. And I knew for the sake of myself and my family and my health and everything that I needed to take uh, an increased dose of antipsychotic, which would bring me down. Yeah. And there was a part of me that was like, I don't want to take this because right. I love the feeling of power that yes. I have. I yes. love my own strength. I love my own capability. I think if I could feel this all the time, I could speak and I could have a ministry and I could do all of the things, you know, dot, 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 for yeah. God's glory. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, but I, but that's not the reality that God has called me to. God has mm. called me to a ministry of weakness and what that looks like is dependence on him. What that looks like is not having my own strength and capability in the ways that, you know, would bring me a lot of glory. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there is, you know, there's a, there's an exchange that happens there where, um, I have to release that and I have to say, you know, and, and it's something that I struggle with, but it's something that I have to say, you know, God, whatever God has for me, mm-hmm. whatever God plans for me, I'm not going to miss out on. Mm-hmm. And it's enough because God is enough. And, um, you know, I do think that, I mean, this is part of the reason I wrote the book. I do think we need to push back on, on those, those ideas of where, you know, who, who is, who was the person like telling the testimony? Who are the people that are telling the stories of God's goodness? Because if they're always all on the other side of the bad thing, then what we see is those people that are in the middle of the bad thing, you know, what goodness is there for us right. here right? in this space? And, and most of us live in this space where there are bad things, you know, life, life is like that. And so, you know, what, what goodness of God is here? Um, in the unhealed places, you know, in the broken places, in the weak places, you know, and I would argue that most of God's glory is here. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that whole run you just went on was so was so profound. I think even your description of loving the feeling of being hypomanic and being capable and feeling your strength, and and um, it, but also uh, this this return to um, and in my life, really, God meets me. Um, and really, this is true. I think for all of us, God meets us truly profoundly in, 
in the places that we lack, discovering God mm-hmm. in all we lack, the, the, the sub of your book. Um, okay, so Aaliyah, I'm in Enneagram 3. <laughs> um, I just laugh. <laughs> yeah, you should laugh. I mean, I, I always go like, oh my I gosh. I just laugh. But, and, and, and actually, so like my life has been sort of like I have been, I have, I was born on third base kind of, and I've been able to, and I mean, I've, I've, I've never done anything super spectacular or whatever, but I, people, I can do that thing. I mean, I, I can, I can produce the podcast and and do the sermons and, and be appreciated for the strength that I bring. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I'm 48, so I'm, I'm definitely cresting into the second half of life. I've already crested into it. Um, <laughs> and, and, and honestly, honestly, more and more, um, and I, I don't, I really don't think I mean this in some cliche way, but it's like, I mean, I, I, I told someone a few months ago that I've been a pastor for 24 years and I feel weary. I feel old and weary. And I think part of the reason is because I, and I have bought into it. I mean, I, I have bought into this, you know, hey, people lean on my strength. I'll be strong. Um, right. But but it ends up, um, oh gosh, like it, it is a hollow feeling. Um, and so I think that's just, this is part of why I'm so loving your book and your story. And that even sounds like, oh, I'm loving your book. I'm loving your story. But, <laughs> but, but it's, it, it's, Okay, glorious weakness. There's a way that I can look weak but still be strong as an Enneagram three. You know, like we 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 learned to do, <laughs> we learned to do that really well. Um, so, um, so talk. Okay, okay, freedom. Talk to an Enneagram three about living um, from a place of weakness. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing about. Um, I mean, so I'm a four wing five. So I have yeah. like, I was, I was joking with a friend who's a four wing three because we both have books, um, that have come out around the same time. And, and just that difference in the wing is mm-hmm. pretty spectacular because I have so little three. I mean, I almost like, I almost have no three. <laughs> I don't have a strong success push. Mm-hmm. I don't have a, you know, but I, but I can look back in my twenties and go, okay, I was definitely sporting some three wing back then. Yeah. Um, I think part of it is, you know, I'm exhausted. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you talk about where part of, you know, sometimes people will be like, Oh my gosh, you're so brave, you know, cause you do this or that. And I, I, you know, I'm like, thank you. But also, you know, I think part of it is that I'm just really tired. Yeah, and yeah. so there's a part of me that's like, I just, there, I don't have time for BS anymore. Yeah. I don't want to pretend I don't want to do any of this. Like, I just want to be honest. And the honest truth is I'm, I'm weary and tired a lot and broken a lot. And this is, you know, this is the reality and this is, this is where God should have been it. So for a three, I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book a lot is our focus on, of course, this is because I'm a four mm-hmm. identity, our identity as beloved. Yeah. And I think so many of us are striving for, mm. um, to be, we want to be beloved, but sometimes what we want to be beloved is for our audience, right? Yes. Like we want want to be beloved by our audience that, you know, gives us applause. We want to be beloved by our uh, congregation or by, you know, the people that opt into our ministry or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever we want to be esteemed and um, being esteemed and being beloved are not the same thing. And I think to be able to differentiate between those to say, I am beloved. So for me, for instance, I, uh, before I went into this book launch, I spent about eight weeks um, in my 
bed staring at my wall and it would count sometimes 60. Mm. So if I can just live for another 60 seconds, mm. just for another 240 seconds, because mm. literally my brain was mush. I was just, mm -hmm. I wasn't even sad. I just felt nothing like completely hollowed out yeah. and I couldn't, I mean, I could barely even shower and we were trying another um, antidepressant. She had added another antidepressant to my, um, to my meds and I, it wasn't kicking in yet. And so I spent a about six weeks just almost catatonic i mean yeah. it just was not functioning and during that time um i mean i just god felt completely absent because yeah. during those times he does i think yep. this yep. is all just this is not real he's not he doesn't exist mm -hmm. this is all just a hoax you know um and so that is the those are the thoughts that go through my my head but i learned the practice of writing the reminders um, of God's faithfulness because I know that it'll get dark again and I'll wonder if he's and so part of the thing about the identity of belovedness what coming out of those areas of just trauma and pain and depression and darkness is that I've realized that um, I am adored by God mm. when I'm laying in bed staring at the wall yeah and I'm producing nothing and I'm contributing to the church in no way. And I'm not out there doing a thing. And yet I am like astoundingly beloved by God. And that realization that I am not disappointing to him because he adores me because he loves me. And, and so, you know, I, I think I grew up with this very, like, sort of legalistic idea of God, not necessarily in the ways we would think of as legalistic, but in this way of, like, how am I pleasing to God, right? The calling. Mm -hmm. The calling of God was such a huge thing. You know, I write in the book about how I don't really like the way that we frame calling, because for some people it makes them very certain. Mm -hmm. They feel super cocky and awesome. And the rest of us are like, what the heck are we supposed to be doing? Because for somebody who is laying in bed for six weeks – Calling feels really cruel. Right, right. Right? What am I called by God to do, um, to be, to do, you know? And and so for me, I think the idea of being beloved instead mm -hmm. of just esteemed um, was so paradigm shifting because I realized, like, I don't have to have all of the approval of all of the people. There's such a freedom in not mm – -hmm. Having that, um, especially growing up feeling like I, I never was going to get it anyway, you yeah, know, like yeah. I always felt like I didn't belong anyway. Um, and to be able to let some of that go and to be able to say, you know, I don't have to perform like, you know, to drop that and be, and be like, I don't have to perform for God. I don't have to perform for people. There's a certain rest that we have. You know, yeah. um, I remember somebody tweeted uh, a while ago asking, like, what would you say like to your, you know, 10 years ago to your, you know, who you were 10 years ago or something like that. And I would have been in my 20s, you know, um, not 10 years ago. Maybe it was longer. Anyway, I remember <laughs> thinking maybe it was longer. I feel you know, like my, skipped a decade there. Um, but something like, what would you tell your younger self if you could yeah. go back in time? You know, and, and I was thinking of all of these things, you know, that I would tell her, you know, my younger, like wear sunscreen, but the, you know, I was like, what, there's so many things that she needs to know. And they were like about how to love people and how to do mm -hmm. different things and judgments that I used to have about things that I have realized I was wrong about, you know, but the truth of it is, you know, 
I realized I would just hold her and I would, you know, just tell her she's beloved, you're beloved, you're beloved, you're beloved. Because I would not have been able to, to hear or receive any of the other messages until I understood that. But nothing else would get through. And um, none of the things that I felt like God had made me for or, you know, you talk about like I can do all of these things. All of those things that you're doing, unless they're operating out of that identity as beloved, they're very performative. Like yeah. they just are. And they're, they end up being exhausted yeah. because eventually – um, you'll never get what you're, you know, people always say like, Oh, when you write the book, you know, it's I, or well, who's Sean Smucker, I think said yeah. like the, when you write the book, like it's never going to be the thing you think it's going to be. And I knew going into it that it wasn't going to like, I wasn't going to have arrived. It's like, Oh, mm-hmm. now my book is out there. And you know, I, I feel like I've made it. Like, I don't feel that at all. And I, I went in knowing that I wouldn't feel that. So I don't feel disappointed. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm like yeah. everything's a bonus, right? Like, yeah. I remember being in my lunch team and people were telling me how the book had affected them. And uh, I have about a hundred and maybe 130 people in my launch team that have helped me spread the word about this book. And they were sharing different ways that God has, you know, ministered to them through this, through my book. And I remember telling my mom, I said, I think, you know, if those are the only people that ha- are impacted by this book and it doesn't even go outside of this launch team, like it, it would have been worth it. Yeah, It would have been worth it, you know, because um, those people matter and their experience matters and the way that God's used it in their life mm-hmm. matters. And mm-hmm. so I felt like going into book launch, anything extra is a bonus. Like it's all yeah. gravy after that. Right. Because so I'm not, um, I, you know, I thought maybe I'd be more stressed about like numbers. You know, I have heard a lot of authors, friends, and I'm not discounting what they, you know, their experience because book launch is stressful. It's yeah. busy, you know, but I thought I would have more stress or more worry. I certainly had more worry leading up to, uh, like, in the writing part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought I would hate marketing because I hate marketing. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm somebody who didn't even have like an email opt-in till like this year. You know, I yes. was blocked for like 12. I didn't have a pop-up. I don't have. A, you know, somebody was telling me on my. You can download the first chapter to read on my blog, and they're like, "Oh, you didn't collect email addresses." <laughs> like, I'm like, oh. I guess that's something I could, you know, I just don't, that's like not really my focus is growing huge. And even the other day I said, you know, we went went to see my book in Barnes and Noble, me and my daughter. And we just had, it was just so awkward. Like I'm just so awkward in person. I was like trying to take a picture in the store, but I didn't want anybody to see me. And like people are walking by and it was just, I just, oh my gosh, it was, it was every bit as awkward as I had imagined. I shouldn't like, people should not let me in public. (laughs) Um, definitely not going to do any book signings to your God, you know, it's just like, somebody rescue me. Um, but in general, I think for me, I, because I can rest in that, you know, and I'm not saying like I'm there, there's definitely times I struggle with imposter syndrome and I'm not like, you know, but, but in this season, um, God has just been so faithful and good to me. And I feel like, you know, I, I just am not, I'm not worried about it. And, and I thought that I would be more worried about it. And so looking at, you know, that, that ability to just have peace mm-hmm. and to know that it's in God's hands. And then on the flip side, knowing, okay, I signed a book deal with Baker, you know, they've entrusted me to, to do this book. And so I am trying to steward the message well, which is why I'm on podcasts and, mm-hmm. you know, putting myself out there and maybe in areas that I'm a little bit more, you know, uncomfortable with. Um, because I, I value the message of this book so much and I poured so much into it, but the results are never up to me. And there's so much freedom in that. 
mm-hmm. knowing that this, the results are never up to me. Like God is going to do what he's going to do and I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Um, and that really, if I didn't have that attitude, I don't think I could continue being a writer. Yeah. Because well, I would, I, yeah. so hard. You know, I, I go back to your little practice of, you know, counting to 60, counting to 180, 240. Um, and I just, I wonder if, if those two things are connected, like, like the, the, the ability to sit in your bed and understand, I I cannot do anything right now. What I can do is count uh, and I can stay alive for another 240 seconds. You know, I, I just think that's a, that's a kind of, that's a kind of touching touching the weakness that that maybe allows I'm, I'm just i'm just guessing here but maybe allows you to to really write a book and go you know what i don't it just will be what it will be you know yeah. um yeah. and and there is a freedom to that but but there's a obviously um obviously there's a price to that as well right i mean um which which you know so well um Gosh, I have a million more questions, but we're running out of time. So I'm, I'm having to having to really look and see what what else do I want to ask you. Um, okay, so I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you like maybe one more sort of big picture question, and then I'll ask you sort of some speed round questions. Is that okay? Um, so I'm wondering, because still, even in 2019, there is among many Christians, sort of a pushback to um, embracing mystery and embracing weakness. People do want to hear, it seems like, people do want to hear the success stories and the after stories. Uh, has there, have you encountered any pushback from sort of Christian community, um, you know, to the message of God meets you in your weakness. And that's such a biblical thing that no one would argue, but I, but I find many people argue with it in practice. Right. So have people pushed back against that in any way? Um, not, not that I know of in terms of like online or readers, but Mm -hmm. certainly in my actual, um, day to day life, there Mm -hmm. is, there is that. And I think, uh, some of that is, um, more in practice, what that looks like. Right. So we, uh, what does it look like to actually love your neighbor? You know, there's a lot of, uh, obviously political stuff that's going on right now in terms of policy. What does it look like to love somebody who's poor? What does it look like? You know, what does it look like to some love somebody who is a refugee or an immigrant or this, you know, these concepts of weakness that we see. And, and what I see, uh, where I see it come out is, in the attitude of the church that says all is grace, but you know, you shouldn't need any, you know, there's right, that kind right. of like, you know, as long, you know, you, but you shouldn't, once you're a Christian, you shouldn't really need any cause you should have it together, mm-hmm. you know, f- fix yourself for Jesus and all that. Um, and so I do think that there is a decided sort of prejudice against those who show up at church week for any prolonged period of time. We mm-hmm. are great with suffering um, and crisis if it's uh, short term. Mm-hmm. So somebody's house burns down, everybody rallies, yeah. you know, yep. uh, somebody has some kind of traumatic, you know, thing that happens once everybody rallies. Mm-hmm. If somebody lives in constant trauma and constant crisis, mm-hmm. 
we start to go, well, that's their fault, yeah. right? That's their, like, they're making bad choices. There's like, what is, you know, so and you think about Job, right? Like this stuff kept happening. And there is that, like, what did you do? Right. You must <laughs> well, have done something them, like, yeah, yeah. you know, but, but there's a reality that that is true in our modern day lives when, yeah. you know, I remember talking to people, I was literally driving to a conference that I was speaking speaking at a writer's conference and I had had so many things happen. I mean, like ridiculous, absurd amount of things. I'd been in the hospital tons of times. I had tons of stuff happen. And we were, I was asking for prayer because I was going in weak. And were you, uh, were you tweeting about this? Cause I think I remember this. I remember. Yes, reading okay, so about this it. was yeah. forever ago, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. um, it was, I was going to, uh, faith and culture mm-hmm. writers conference in Portland mm-hmm. and me and my, friend literally drove to the outskirts of Portland and got hit by a truck. Yes. <laughs> and I remember saying like, I literally just got hit by a truck. Like I feel like I got hit by a truck. Cause I got hit by a truck, but I also literally <laughs> got hit by a truck. You know, And so yeah. there were those kind of things where you're just like, you know, it's almost comical. Um, and you kind of have to just laugh because like nobody would actually believe mm-hmm. all of the things. Like you're just, I mean, you're like, worse than a country song, right? So you're, you're, there's a part of um, our society, I think, that will absolutely say, oh, yeah, God is, you know, his power is made perfect mm-hmm, in our weakness. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we think that. But we don't want to live with constant weakness. No. We want it to be like one time we were weak, yep. that one time we were sick and God, God you know, mm-hmm. showed up, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. The one time we were struggling financially and the check came, the one time that, you know, we weren't sure about this or that and then God provided, we want that to be the story. And yes. I, I'm not saying that that's not the story. I, I think we should definitely, uh, you know, thank God for all of his provision and all the ways that he meets us. But when it is a constant, prolonged weakness, as it is with chronic health issues, as it is with mental health issues, mm-hmm. as it is with people in poverty or people that are struggling, uh, you know, under oppressive things in society, racism under, mm-hmm. you know, what, so when you look at those things that are continual, we don't have a way to meet that in the church. We don't have a way to walk with that in the church. We don't have an idea of a communal body that feels what the other parts feel. <laughs> if it's not yeah. something that we feel, then we don't, we don't necessarily value it, you know? Mm. And, um, and yeah, I think that's why we're, you know, we're, we're really bad at, at suffering yeah. with each other. We're really bad at lament as a community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're just, you know, I think that there's a huge deficit there because we say these things like we believe them, but we don't live like we believe them. Yeah. Oh, that's so profound and true. You know, it makes me think about, I mean, it's very different, but maybe it's not that different. Like, you know, if the church were, were set up like, like the 12 step groups, you know, which, you know, so it's like, like, I mean, there's no, there's no budget, right. And there's no staff, there's just sponsors and there's just, everyone is on the same, I mean, you're at different parts of your journey, maybe with your sobriety, but but you're an addict and you're, and you're either sponsoring and you're being sponsored and you know, and you're working the steps, right? So there's like, so, but, but, but the 12 step folks, and that's not the only, I'm not saying it's the only way to overcome right, right. addiction. Yeah. Certainly yeah. not. Um, but they have, um, the, the, the culture has yeah. figured out how to sit with people who are in profound levels of pain yep. and unhealed stuff. 
you know, without relying on power and structure and, oh, well, there's, there's a huge structure, I guess, but right, yeah. anyway, so. But I mean, um, even entering into that, you know, when you're thinking about 12 step, they, mm -hmm. the first thing that they do is they admit their weakness. Yes. I mean, that's, that's the starting point. This is, you know, Hey, my name is this, and this is my thing. Yeah. Right. And so, but we don't do that in the church, mm -hmm. right? Like that's, this was my thing back before I was a Christian, mm -hmm. right? This was my thing, you know, this is my testimony. It's the before and after. Yeah. Um, we don't live in the after we live in the now. Right. Right. And I, I just have this, like my, my thing these days is the ordinariness of humanity is, is the only place where God can meet you actually like in your ordinary, actual Ex human lived experience yeah. is the only place where God can meet you. They're, they're yeah. like, like you cannot, uh, God cannot meet that, which is fake or false. I don't right. think. Right. Um, and so I wonder if, and, and you've been saying it the whole time, you know, may, maybe part of what's sick in American Christianity anyway, is that is that we 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 have the opposite belief that God can only meet us when we, um, you know, maybe in that flat, yeah, tidied up, yeah. or or in that flash moment of right. healing, you know, where right. oh, yeah. I once was blind, but yeah. now I see. Right. It took a moment. It it, it was a yeah. moment, yeah. and I think people are pretty hungry for that bullshit to be maybe exposed. <laughs> You know, yeah. yeah, I I don't know, but I hope so. Yeah, well, and that's I, I think that's part of what I'm what I'm reading in your book. So number one, and I've I've told you this, but I, I want listeners to hear this. the the writing in your book is so descriptive, poetic, hopeful, raw. It's so good. So it even if you just like good writing. <laughs> buy this book. <laughs> um, but I think, and, and again, like the way that you describe, you know, you say, and I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to get the number right. I don't think, but you say most adults have 32 teeth. I have 17. Right. Yeah. And then you, you go into this beautiful description of like, when you go into the dentist, it, it, you say people with money get teeth fixed. Right. Uh, so you are essentially marginalized and people make assumptions about you as a person mm -hmm. because of something that you had no control over, like your teeth. Right. And I think that like that drumbeat, I just wanted to underline that. And like that is the system. It seems like that system, both in the church and in, and in just the culture which is mm -hmm. the same thing, um, ends up like robbing our culture of some of the depth and richness that we could have if we listened to people who were marginalized. We put people on platforms uh, to tell their story of being in it and not over it. Mm -hmm. And so you just, you, um, and maybe I should pause and, and maybe you want to say, like, well, that, that wasn't what I was writing. But I just so appreciated that and appreciate that in how you, how you used your experience to, to shed light on the systemic marginalization 
of people with issues that aren't even their fault, but they become their fault, you know, right? Right. Like bipolar. Well, so my, I think my understanding of how most people think of people with bipolar, if they get hypermanic or whatever the phrase is, is, okay, and like, forgive me for this pejorative, but I think most people think, well, just stay on your meds, you idiot. You know, like, what are you doing, right? Versus understanding like, oh, you don't understand that I have to change my meds all the time because they stop working, right? Right, right. Like that is a thing. People don't get that, right? I mean, I'm- Well, and also just thinking about the cycles of all of it, you know, that that everything is sort of connected. Yeah. And I think that, so for instance, for me, you know, I'm a fat woman, like, I mean, that's the word I would use. Um, And so even in society, going out in society, what people think of me for the amount of space I take up um, I'm about to travel to Austin. So I know traveling, flying to Austin mm-hmm. tomorrow morning that I will get on a plane and I will have to ask for a seatbelt extender mm-hmm. and I will see the person walking down the aisle, counting the, you know, mm-hmm. the aisle numbers. Mm-hmm. And if I'm sitting there and they see me, there's a very good chance that I will catch that, that glimpse of the, of mm-hmm. disappointment or disgust or whatever, that they're going to have to sit next to me and mm-hmm. I will do my best to make myself really tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I will deal with the judgments of people as I move about in the world because I, you know, have let myself get this way. Um, mm-hmm. and that, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of, to be said about that whole right, thing right. that's separate. But what I will say is that I staying on my meds, I've in, so in the last uh, seven months since we've switched my meds, I have gained 60 pounds. Mm. So what that means for me is that my clothes don't fit. Mm-hmm. I'm uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I have to buy all new new things. And with the additional you know, weight comes other medical problems mm-hmm. that I'm now having to deal. So do I stay on my meds that help me stay stable emotionally and mentally but cause all these physical side effects and problems? Mm-hmm. Or do I try to switch my meds to treat these other problems that are that are coming up Uh, you know, there's just these, you know, I have to, I have asthma, so I have to go on rounds of steroids often Mm -hmm. and those cause, you know, increased weight gain and triglyceride. Like, Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I'm constantly, you know, struggling with all of these concurrent issues and things. It's not as easy to just say, well, this is just what you do. Right. Because nobody sees the the behind the scene. We just look at the outside and we look at the, you know, thing and we think that's not something that I struggle with. And so this is what that person should do. Yeah. And that's, you know, that makes sense. Just do this thing. They also don't realize I don't have medical insurance, which means every time I have to go to the psychiatrist, uh, it costs me money out of mm-hmm. pocket. Mm-hmm. I have to pay for my meds every month. So there are months mm-hmm. when and my husband's a painter, he works construction. So if, if, uh, you know, times are hard, he, you know, he got laid off a few weeks ago. He's working again now, but he was laid off for a couple weeks. Um, there, there comes a time when I go, okay, well, how am I going to afford my meds this month? Because right. I, I can't afford to go off them, but also like, hey, they're really expensive. Yeah. Um, and so there are there. I think you know we don't look at people holistically. Right. Like, what are they struggling under? What are they suffering from? What are the things in their life? We don't take the time to hear people's actual stories. Mm-hmm. We look at the facts, and what we think the facts are are not always the truth. Mm-hmm. When we look at the facts, we say this person is this, 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 and this, and this is the reason that their life is this way. But when we really sit down with somebody and, and find out their story and the truth of all of the things that are going on behind the scenes, I think most of us would be 
more compassionate and yeah. more kind. Yeah. Um, but we don't have that le- level of vulnerability in, in the church and nurses. So we don't really know what people are struggling with. Mm. We don't really know what people are dealing with. Um, and so it's easy to remain distant and to think, you know, they've brought this all on themselves. You yeah. Know? Good thing I can, I've escaped that by being faithful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, just underlying. Thank you for even just going through that, that little run right there of, um, this is what perhaps, you know, if you're thinking, why don't they blank, 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 Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe you haven't considered these factors. Right. And, um, gosh, that's just so enlightening and helpful. I think, um, and it just makes me think like there, there's just, uh, okay. So, um, yeah, I, I just need to stop even that, that line of thinking cause I, cause we got to wrap it up here. Um, so this is a 12 hour podcast, it, it, maybe it is, maybe there needs to be a part two, part three. Um, can I ask you just a couple of quick yeah. speed rounds? Yeah. I know probably your, your boys are banging down the door and maybe burning down the house. Who knows? <laughs> Uh, my guys are about to get home, so we're about to hear yeah. thunder elephants up, <laughs> up. I'm in the basement right now. Um, okay, so um, speed round question. Who okay. are just one or two people you would say heroes, like people you look up to? Could be could be authors, could be public figures, could be friends. But uh, My mom. Yeah. She's probably the most faithful person that I know. Yeah. Um, and she really was the one that taught me how absurd the gospel is. Yes. Um, at like how absurd the kingdom of God is because mm. she, she has lived sort of this absurd life of, of faithfulness. Um, so her, I really loved uh, Brennan Manning. Yeah. Um, I read Ragamuffin Gospel in my 20s and um, told everybody he was a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, this is terrible. <laughs> You can't just allow people to have grace like this. They'll just go run amok, you know. Um, that was literally my reaction. Sorry. I cried through the whole thing, and I and then I was like, "This is heresy." Yeah. Um, but he really, his work really uh, was foundational in transforming some of the things I believed about grace. Yeah. Um, so he would be one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are the two. Like just off the top of my head, I I could probably go on and on and on and on. Yeah. I have so many people that I um have learned and gleaned from and have, who have inspired me in different ways along the way. But those are the two that I was thinking about in terms of writing in life. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. I, I love Brandon Mann too. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm sure I would love your mom too, if I knew her, but um, <laughs> um, let's, let's say, you know, someone is listening to this podcast and they've realized they've been crying for 35 straight minutes <laughs> and they, they want, they, they, they need some space to be honest about what they're going through, but they don't know what that space is. Do you have any advice for someone who is in that space? Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard because I, it, there's this gamble that you take when you're honest. Mm-hmm. And, um, in, in one sense, I, you know, I say honesties are invitation. I write about that in the book about a time when I was very, very uncomfortable. I went to this writer's conference and, I just felt completely out of place uh, because, you know, I, I thought it was just like writers and I was like, yeah, I write. And then I got there and it was like leaders that were, yeah. you know, doing things. And I just thought I don't fit here. Um, I'm, you know, somebody struggles with mental illness. I struggle with, you know, finances. I'm uh, a high school dropout. I got my GED. I don't have a degree, you know? So um, 
there was this sort of feeling of like, I don't, I, you know, what is, which of these things is not like the other. <laughs> and I remember talking to somebody the next morning and just kind of like, I don't know, just blurted it all out about how uncomfortable I was. I just doubled down. Yes. Like I feel uncomfortable. I'm just going to double down, which is a lot of times what I do. And I just, I just say it <laughs> like yeah. just blurts out. This is really awkward. And I feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, and then she started sharing and I just realized I'm not as, as alone as I think, like she mm. was dealing with her own stuff. And so there are times when I think, um, our honesty is an invitation for other people to be honest. And there's a place for that. Yeah. At the same time, there are times when you could share things with really toxic and unsafe people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it could be a very damaging thing because those people are not ready to, to steward your story well. Um, and to know the difference and to have the wisdom. I mean, I'm a four, so I'm really intuitive typically about, about people. Like I will get feelings about people and I'm almost always right. Mm-hmm. There are people that, you know, everybody loves and I'm like, I do not trust that person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And most of the time I'm right. And so I do put a lot of, um, wait into like my gut and my, my feelings about, about things. And so, um, I just think it takes a lot of wisdom, you know, and practice, uh, to, to know how to be vulnerable and where to be vulnerable in places that are, um, I mean, I don't know that there's a, like a set of rules, like this is when you should, and this is when you shouldn't. I think a lot of it is, is praying and looking for spaces where you can start to be more honest and be more, you know, and maybe it's just with one person, mm-hmm. Um, but, but starting to push into having those real, you know, relationships and those real things. And some, some of it I think is just starts with being honest with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think we lie to ourselves more, more than we almost lie to anybody yeah, else you're right about, about what we're capable of and what we, what we feel and like, be honest with yourself about what you are going through. Be honest with God, you know, he can handle it. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes my most honest prayers are, you know, WTF God, like yeah, what, is, for sure. what is happening? You know, like, um, and I don't, I think he can handle it. He's there. He, we have a relationship with him that he, we can be bold. And so, I mean, I think it's all of those things, but yeah, I think it takes a lot of wisdom, mm-hmm. um, yeah. to know how, how to do it well, you know, that's good. Well, it's good on both, you know, sometimes it's just time to be honest and it invites other people to be honest and, and just having some wisdom to know who might be, um, not, not, not a good, a good person, maybe toxic. So, man, I like that. Um, okay. I think we are out of time. So I'm going to put all of, I have all of your stuff, all your, 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 your blog site and your your book page, aliajoy.com. Um, so I'll put that all that on the show notes. Um, but is there any other, like, you know, for people who want to connect with you via, I mean, I'll put your Twitter handle and stuff, but for people that want to follow your work, what's, what's the easiest way? I mean, is there an email uh, opt-in now? I I do now have a newsletter (laughs) that I am so, so bad at sending out. So far it's been annual. Yes. Yes. Mine (laughs) is biannual, I think. And it's, it's annual. Um, yeah. So I haven't even sent any email out about my book since it's, I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of terrible. I see people signing up for it and I'm like, Oh, you poor people. Well, I'll tell you this <laughs> though. Neglected. You have a great, you have a great launch team because I'm seeing a lot of people. Uh, maybe, maybe we just follow the same people. I don't know, but, but I'm seeing a lot of people posting on your book and, and Instagram and on Twitter and, and, yeah. and many they're other the places, best. So. they are the best. Ever. Yeah. And they're all just my, like, most of them are just readers who've been around forever. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really have any huge rock stars. They're just, they're just people that like, like my book, yeah. you know, and feel connected. And they just have been amazing. Like, 
hands down best launch team ever. So, well, you know that I mean that speaks to you um, and, and and the way that you've connected with your readers vulnerably and honestly. So, yes, I'm sure they're amazing people, and they are. <laughs> and uh, they are excited about your work, you know. So, um, so that's that's something to celebrate. Um, well, Aaliyah, I'm gonna. Um, I can't wait for people to, to listen to this. Um, I also can't wait to just to sort of give your book to people because I, I, I do think it's, it's just so helpful. And I have loved this conversation. Um, I, you know, I, I, I tell people like, Oh my gosh, like the podcast, I just, I just interview people that I want to talk to, you know, like that's, what's fun. And this has yeah. been one of those really, really good for my soul. Um, good for my soul conversation. So thank you so much. Um, Thanks for having me. It's been awesome. Yeah. I like, I like just talking. <laughs> well, you're, you're good. So folks, uh, Aaliyah Joy, A-L-I-A, and then J-O-Y, her book is called Glorious Weakness, Discovering God in All We Lack. You can get it wherever you buy books. Uh, you can go on her. I encourage you to go on her site, aaliyahjoy.com. From there, you can uh, find a link to her book page. You can follow her on Twitter, Aaliyah Joy H, and on Instagram, Aaliyah Joy. Again, uh, the book is called Glorious Weakness. So get into it. It's so good. It's so good. And I, you know, I I say uh, um, that your book is raw and beautiful. It's also pretty funny. <laughs> there there are some <laughs> funny moments in there too. Uh, and so that's good too. So um, yay. Thank you, Aaliyah. And uh, I apologize for taking up an hour and 11 minutes. Oh, of your no, time. it's been awesome. <laughs> Everybody's right. been quiet. So I am a little sad that your mom didn't interrupt us. I was sort I of looking forward I to know. that. She usually, she usually just enters every room like she's already in the middle of a conversation <laughs> with me. And so she's just, you know, I don't know how many times she's walked in, but she's not feeling that great today. So that's probably oh. why she's. Okay. Well, that's not good. <laughs> Well, enjoy your trip to Austin. Oh my gosh. I saw your tweet about where should I eat? And there's just too many places. I mean, there's a taco place that I trying to remember. It's like fast food taco, but it's so amazingly good. So I'm going to try to think of that. Uh, and then I will, if, if, if I remember it before you go, I will, I will send you that link, but it's, man, it's good. Um, but in Austin, you can, you can, you can just close your eyes and throw a rock and hit a good restaurant. So You'll be fine. Um, <laughs> to me. Okay. Thanks, Aaliyah. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thanks so much. <laughs> hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon. Patreon.com slash This Good Word. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.